The following episode contains material that may be harmful or traumatizing to some audiences, including discussion of murder and suicide. Listener discretion is advised. Walk me through that day. It was an unusual day in the sense that we were contemplating moving from downtown to the Upper West Side. And so there was a handyman who was supposed to come and uh, get it ready so we can put the place on the market. So instead of getting up and being out the door by 6.30 and in my office by 7, I was hanging around till about 9.30. But ironically, it was a great morning because I got to spend so much time with Sophie and Adrian in a way that I normally hadn't. So it was very fortuitous in that way. She was going to her office, which was where she used to live before she met me and where she did all her work and writing and everything. And two of us left here together and I dropped her off and she went in her building and that was the last time I ever saw her. Andy Ostroy's wife, actress, director, and screenwriter Adrian Shelley was in the prime of her life, on the verge of making it big, married to her love, and mom to a beautiful daughter. She had it all at her fingertips until the first day of November in 2006, when everything changed. Police in Manhattan tonight are investigating the mysterious death of a 40-year-old actress. Adrienne Shelley was found dead in her West Village office last night. It was Shelley's husband, Andy Ostroy, who found her. From Cast Media, this is Media Circus, an inside look at private tragedy in the public eye. I take high-profile crimes you might think you know and connect you with the real people behind the media coverage to share their stories, in their own words, on their own terms. I'm Kim Goldman. You don't have to know Andy Ostroy for very long to know he was absolutely in love with his wife and the life they shared with their almost three-year-old girl. So tell me how you met Adrian. Adrian and I met on Match.com, believe it or not. It was right after 9-11, and it was a time when a lot of people were reassessing their lives. I mean, I'm talking days after 9-11. And she was an actor, and she hung out with actors and film people and showbiz people. And so she was like, my dating life, my relationship life consists of narcissistic, controlling, alcoholic actors, and I got to do something different. And against the backdrop of 9-11 and reassessing one's life, she said, well, how am I going to find somebody different? I don't travel in those circles. How do I meet the so-called normal guy? So she went online and I had just came off a relationship and you know I was just looking to meet people and have some fun and go out. And then all of a sudden, a few days after 9-11, I get this message through the app from her. And she made up a fake name. She didn't really tell me who she was. There was no photo, but she described herself in a way that was pretty alluring and interesting. I remember showing it to a friend and he was like, yeah, you should definitely go out with this one. What's the worst that can happen? She was just amazing. She was like no one I had ever met before. While Adrian had a following, starring in over 20 movies, the divorced father of three was more focused on raising his kids than the Manhattan film scene. When I met her, I had no idea who she was. A friend who was asking me who I was dating, and I told him, and he was like, you're dating Adrian Shelley? I'm like, yeah, why? Why is that exciting to you? Because I had no idea. When she was like in her Angelica Theater, downtown New York, indie ingenue phase, I was changing diapers. That was not my world. To me... She was always Adrian Levine, the sweet little Jewish girl from Long Island. That's who I met. That's who I fell in love with. That's who I married. So I had to kind of deal with it and accept it. And it just, 
It was weird. It was a weird space to be in. It didn't take long for Andy and Adrian to plan their future together. We knew right away we were going to get married, which we did a year later. It was just one of those kind of fairy tale romances. So what was your life like as a married couple, as you became parents? So tell me what your world was like. When I met Adrian, she was just about getting ready to write Waitress. We had a great life. She was able to do her thing, and I was very supportive of that. And, you know, we eventually had Sophie almost three years later. And Waitress, of course, is about a woman who has a lot of fears and concerns about giving up her independence and her career to have a child. Come on. Dear Lord, please protect our Jenna from the hell of unwanted pregnancy. I don't need no baby. I don't want no trouble. I just want to make pies. That's all I want to do. So it was somewhat autobiographical. She was a smart-ass woman. So if I had a business problem, I used her as a sounding board. She had a great mind. And, and we really connected. She had her world. I had mine. But there was a lot of space in the middle in terms of overlap. And so we really, we really locked in. And then when Sophie came, it was just, it was just amazing. Did you see her differently when she became a mom? Yeah. I'd like to think everyone who has a child with someone sees their partner differently because it's a whole different, as you know, it's a life changes. It's a whole different life. Wednesday, November 1st, 2006, the family had just enjoyed Halloween together the night before. But soon after Andy dropped his wife off at her West Village office that morning, something felt wrong. When did you start to worry? When did you start to think something wasn't right? I started to worry very early on because, as I said before, we were looking to move. And the realtor emailed me at about 10 o'clock and said, I, you know, I got a, I got a place on the Upper West Side. You got to come look at it right now before it gets on the market. So I started emailing Adrian because I had a busy day at work and it was hard to hop on the phone. And back then, we were both on AOL. And back then, you could see if someone opened an email. So I would send her the email. I'd say, you got to meet me right away, like a half hour from now uptown. No response. And then I started calling. Her landline was busy because back then, you used your landline to dial up AOL. And her cell phone didn't answer. The skeptic in me really started to percolate, like, this is weird. And then it just progressed from there. I, I started sending more emails, um, started sending emails in the subject line, like, where are you? I need to speak with you. Is everything okay? Andy had a busy day. With clients visiting from out of town, he was jam-packed with meetings. I'd go in a meeting for a half hour. I'd come out. I'd check. Uh, she still hasn't called. For the first few hours, you always think, all right, maybe the cell phone battery died, or she met a friend on the street, and they went to lunch, and she shut her phone or whatever. You never start to think something's really, really bad in just three hours, four hours, because anything can be possible. But was it unusual that she didn't respond? Because Yes. Okay. But for me back then, not having tragedy like this in my life, I kind of operated like everybody else. Like, you don't go to the bad place right away. Now, if you don't call me in five minutes, I'm at the bad place, literally. And so that's one of the, you know, unfortunate consequences of, of going through something like this. But by mid-afternoon, Andy was seriously concerned. By 3 o'clock, 3.30, real panic set in. Then at some point, I called the nanny and I said, have you heard from Adrian today? And she said no. And this was like 4.30, 5 o'clock. Now, normally we were in contact all day. We were one of those annoying couples that email, text, call, whatever, just every 40 minutes about something. Even just to say, hey, how's it going, you bastard, you know, something like that. 
And I know Adrian was always obsessively checking on Sophie. And that's when I got a real sinking feeling in my stomach. And that's when I said to my friend, we, we've got to go downtown and check on her. On the short drive to Adrian's office, Andy had a terrible feeling. That 10-minute drive from my office to her office, I just knew she was dead. Knew it. Why? At this point, logical Andy kicked in. There was no way we were going to go from 9.30 to 5 o'clock without contact, with nothing. Not even a returned email, not even an opened email. That was the key, too. So I started to put all this circumstantial stuff together, and it was just like, there's only one answer, but how could that be? My friend told me a couple of years later that we pulled up in front of her building, and I said, just wait here, I'm going to run up, make sure she's okay, and then I'll be right down. And then I walked away from the car, turned around, came back, opened the door, and I looked at him and said, I'm going in that building now, and my life is about to change forever. And then I walked away, and he was like, what the fuck? Like, holy shit. Andy walked up to the Greenwich Village building and buzzed Adrian's office. No one was there. I finally got to the door after, like, buzzing. Nobody answered. The the young doorman guy that was sitting in the lobby, he went down with me to the basement to see if he had a key. He didn't have a key. And we just decided to go up to the door because I had to find out. And it was weird because Adrian was always one of those, like, one lock, two lock, three lock, four. Like, she was just paranoid. And so when I got up there, the, the door was locked. I tried to open it. I couldn't. And I, I said to this kid, how do we get in here? He goes, okay, well, we just call the cops. They'll, they'll get in, firemen, whatever. But something said to me, try the door again. And I turned it, and it just popped open. It was the weirdest thing in the world. And then I went in, and I cased the place out, room to room. It was a small apartment, and eventually found her. Andy found his wife with a rope around her neck, hanging from a shower curtain rod. He screamed. The doorman called 911. When you're at the scene of a crime like that, it's surreal. I didn't know what to do. When I was sitting on the couch, I just closed my eyes and I stared at the floor. And I didn't open them again. So the whole time that cops were coming in and firemen were coming in and EMT and everybody, I had no visual because I didn't want to, I didn't, I couldn't, I, it just it was terrifying to me. So I remember it's almost like when you have a different sense that kicks in. I could close my eyes and remember like the dangling and the cuffs and the steps and the walkie talkies and all of that crime scene noise. That's what I remember. The investigation swirled around Andy as he sat there, eyes closed, in shock. At some point, they instructed Andy to go outside and leave the scene. You don't have to be a rocket scientist to know that the spouse is always suspect number one. We've all watched TV and we know that like, that's often what happens. There's some kind of angry spouse somewhere. And when you sort of compound that with, oh, oh, and he's the guy that found her. But they didn't focus on Andy very long. Soon after finding Adrian's body, law enforcement believed Adrian took her own life, ruling her death a suicide. But Andy wasn't buying it. It was not going to be acceptable to me. That was going to be her legacy. Andy knew in his gut he needed to take matters into his own hands. They did an autopsy, and I think it was inconclusive, the first one. But I hired Michael Baden. Yes. You know him, obviously. Michael Baden is a forensic pathologist known for investigating high-profile deaths. In fact, he testified as a defense witness for my brother's killer in August of 1995. Ironically, Adrian and I were both kind of true crime fans before she died. And so we would sometimes lie in bed at night and watch his show Autopsy on HBO. And then all of a sudden I'm calling him to do an autopsy on Adrian. 
This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp. I've been in and out of therapy my whole life. I love it. It helps me stay centered, accountable, and pushes me to heal and grow. I don't necessarily wait to have a big problem to solve for me. It's kind of like fine-tuning my brain, a checkup for my emotions. It's like going to the doctor for a physical, just making sure it's all working the best it can. So for that reason, BetterHelp works perfectly for me. I created an account, answered a few questions, and I was matched with a therapist in just two days and had my first appointment within a week, all from the comfort of my home. BetterHelp offers therapy in a way that works for you. I have sessions by phone, but you can also use video or text, whatever feels most comfortable. Plus, BetterHelp works with my budget. It's more affordable than in-person therapy and also fits with my busy schedule. It's a win-win. And Media Circus listeners get 10% off their first month at betterhelp.com slash circus. That's betterhelp.com slash circus. While Andy searched for answers, the media ran with the story. As someone who has a journalism degree, I have a natural fondness for the media. But as you can attest, when something like that happens, often, especially if it's local media, tabloid media, they are relentless in the pursuit of their stories. And usually the stories that they want to write are very sensational. And they don't really have much sensitivity to the families. And that's what happened in our case. There was one or two reporters in particular, just completely oblivious or unwilling to accept that this is not just a newspaper story or whatever. This is a family that's going through something really horrible. They wanted their story, and some of them were relentless and rude. And what were they reporting at that time? The actress found hanging in a bathroom of her Manhattan office likely committed suicide. They were going with the suicide thing. The news didn't hit until two days later. Because everything happened that Wednesday night, and, you know, it takes time for the news people to get their shit together. So Thursday was kind of like this weird blackout day. Like, it was kind of normal. We had been experiencing this incredible tragedy, but I took Sophie to her little nursery school. The news hadn't broken yet. It broke on Friday, for the most part. And the New York Post had this big front page thing, and then a suicide actress article thing on page four, and... And I started thinking, like, it's Friday. This is the big city. Someone else is going to get killed somewhere, and everyone's going to move on. And this last impression of suicide is just, that's how it's going down. But Andy wasn't about to give up. I called the police precinct that was in charge of the case, and I asked to speak with the lead detective. And they said he was gone for the weekend. And I said, well, then just give me somebody else who's working the case. What are you guys doing? Where are we at? And the person I spoke to on the phone literally said to me at one point, there's nobody else working the case. I mean, it's not what you want to hear, but as far as we're concerned, it's a suicide. I got off that phone call and I realized whatever I was feeling, grief, pain, I had to just put that aside and go into some other kind of mode if I wanted to reverse this narrative. And so I contacted my best friend who's a corporate PR guy and... I said, we got to do something bigger than the front page of the New York Post. I don't know what that is, but you figure it out. And he decided that we would just do an exclusive with the local news, Eyewitness News. Andy Ostroy says his wife's death on Wednesday is suspicious and not a simple case of suicide. Despite media headlines that proclaim that Adrienne Shelley, the beautiful blonde actress, took her own life inside apartment 47 here in this Greenwich Village apartment building. There are emails 
phone conversations that took place almost up until the time of the, of the tragedy itself. She was making plans with our friends for the weekend, dropping off things to our daughter's school. That little girl has to grow up knowing the truth. That kind of turned the heat on, I later learned. And so the next morning, I got a call from a, a detective at Manhattan South Homicide. And that's when it really kicked in. Did you go in thinking that it was going to turn the heat up, or was it really more that you just didn't want the world to believe that Adrian killed herself? It was purely designed to turn the heat up. I understand the power of the media, and I did it in a way that I knew what the outcome would be. And so it got what I wanted, fortunately. It was then that the case began to move forward. The way it works usually is that when there's a crime or a murder, there's the local police precinct in New York that handles the case if it's in their precinct. And simultaneously, the homicide team will sort of poke around, if only to just confirm for the precinct guys that, yep, this is a suicide, just move forward with that. So fortunately, this detective, uh, Jimmy Piccione, something in his mind said, keep looking, keep digging. It was that shadow of a doubt that led the detective back to Adrian's building on Saturday. So this is the day after I went on the news. And he just was poking around, and he noticed a very thin layer of some construction dust outside Adrian's door. And so he said to the building manager, is there construction in the building? And they said, yep. Yeah. And he said, where? And they said, the apartment below. So he goes down to the apartment below, he sees more dust, gets into the apartment, and right there, in the dust, is the sneaker print. That was it. That's how this case was solved. But nobody had been in that apartment until that Saturday. So if he didn't decide to go to that building on Saturday, life would be very different right now. It was just the simplest classic detective work. Somebody had to believe that it wasn't a suicide, and he was that guy. While the detective was doing his job, the autopsy results came back. Adrian was murdered. He called me later that afternoon, and he told me she fought like an animal. Those were his exact words. And so I started to get excited in this weird, surreal way. I try to explain to people what it's like when you're rooting for your spouse to have been murdered. But if the alternative is that her legacy is that she killed herself, murder is like really cool. <laughs> like that's just no way to explain it. So once you realize that, oh my God, I, I think she really was murdered. Then you go to a totally different place of how and why did she suffer? And, and, then, it's, and then it's not cool anymore. So you're happy for like not even a minute. On Sunday, with family and friends in attendance, Adrian Shelley was laid to rest. And then the next morning was the funeral on Sunday. Still hadn't heard anything from the cops. And I didn't hear anything until 6.30 Monday morning. They called me and said, can you come downstairs? We need to talk with you. And I got to say, at that moment, I literally thought they were coming to arrest me. That's where my mind went. I was like, this is how this story is going to get even more shitty than it is. And now my kid is not going to have either parent. And I went down to the lobby and I turned the corner slowly to see if like there's a whole line of cop cars. And I, my heart was pounding. And then all of a sudden a little unmarked car pulled up. Piccione and his partner came out. And he said to me, Andy, we, we, we arrested the guy who killed your wife. Diego Pilco, a 19-year-old construction worker, was charged with Adrian's murder. 
The death of actress Adrienne Shelley was murder, not suicide. Police allegedly matched his sneaker footprint to one found in the bathtub where Shelley was found hanging from a bedsheet tied to the shower curtain rod. He staged it as a suicide. He didn't do a really good job at it without getting into the gory details, but he did the best he could in his warped mind of what would a suicide look like. The macabre thing is that he told cops he was in her apartment for like 45 minutes. He broke in, he tried to rob her, she caught him, he killed her kind of quickly, and then he, he hung around staging his thing. That's a mindset of a monster. But that wasn't the only news Andy got that day. Just hours after the killer was arrested, Andy was notified that Waitress, the film Adrian wrote, directed, and acted in, was getting noticed. We learned that it got into Sundance the day her killer was arrested, that Monday. Went downstairs. The cops told me they arrested somebody. I came upstairs a couple hours later, got a phone call. Nuts. It was quintessential bittersweet moment you could ever imagine. She died before she was even aware that it got into Sundance, which is every filmmaker's dream, especially back then. The Holy Grail was Sundance. So she died a struggling filmmaker. I think she believed in what she wrote because a lot of people told her it was amazing. But at the time she died, it was just a little script that she wrote that she was hoping somebody's going to like and buy. So Sundance was the first moment where the world saw a waitress and I got to see her on a big screen and her mother got to see. And that was just brutal because there she was and she was beautiful and she was on screen and this was her moment and everything was finally happening for her. But she's not here and we all are. How is that possible? And so the bittersweet nature of that was brutal. Adrian's career blossomed. Waitress was a success and even spawned a hit Broadway musical of the same name. But Andy was still on a mission to find out what happened. Is it important for you to know the specific details? Yeah. For me, I needed to tie up that loose end. I needed to know why did this incredible human being disappear? What were the circumstances? Because if I lie down every night and I wonder, I'm just torturing myself for the rest of my life. Knowing those details, knowing how it happened, it was very important to me to understand the truth of that day. And it was only one person alive who knows that. That's him. When Adrian's killer initially confessed to her murder, he told them the incident began with an altercation. He told them that she came downstairs from her apartment to complain about noise and she slapped him in the face and she called him a bitch and blah, blah, blah. And I was like, that is so not Adrian. First of all, we know that she died at around 10 o'clock. So she lit this, all this happened like within a half hour of me dropping her off. And that's an important detail, which is why I couldn't reach her all day. And that explains why she was radio silent because she was gone. And my instinct, my gut instinct, all of that, it was spot on. So Adrian was the kind of person where if she put her bags down at 9.30 and there was noise, she wouldn't immediately go complain. Adrian would wait four hours and then go downstairs with a cake and say, oh, hi, here's some cake. And by the way, can you, that's what Adrian would do. She certainly wouldn't have slapped anybody. She certainly wouldn't have punched anybody or called him a bitch or complained within 15 minutes. That was just not her. So we knew that was bullshit from the get-go. But it was a story that changed over time. In late 2021, as a tribute to his wife and on a quest to find answers, Andy directed Adrian 
an HBO documentary that beautifully shares the life and legacy of Adrian Shelley. In the film, Andy confronts Adrian's killer, an undocumented immigrant from Ecuador, in prison. He came here from another country, and his mother basically mortgaged her house to get some coyote the money so he can get in here. And he owed like 13000 bucks, and he, he needed to send her money or she was going to lose her house. Because these people who bring you across the border, they're bad dudes. So he said that he pretty early on started robbing apartments because he needed money. And that was a big reveal for me. That was so important to me because I never could understand how a kid who was 19, who had no record in Ecuador, no record here, seemingly got up every day and busted his ass at a construction job. How does he become a monster? How does he go from here to here? And when I finally heard this story that he told, it wasn't like he was going from here to here. He was a criminal. She didn't meet some kid who snapped, a hardworking kid who snapped. She encountered a criminal who was ready to escalate his criminal behavior to that next level. He just, he had never been caught before in somebody's apartment, but he was going in and out of apartments everywhere he worked. This is what he told me. And so now it all made sense to me. It made sense to me that he put his ear on the door. He didn't hear anybody and he went in and he saw the bag reached for her money, and then she came out of whatever room she was in. And that's how it happened. And so it took so long to sort of get to something that seemed like the truth. Because it was, what's the point of him telling that story if it's not true? What's the value in him saying, I was a criminal, I robbed people, and your wife caught me? Like, he's not ducking anything. He's actually making his case worse by saying that. You opted to go see your wife's killer in prison. So I want to know what in the F possessed you to want to do that. I light on stuff, and I want him to acknowledge what he did and who he took and the consequence of that. The way I'm wired, I needed to know. My life could not be settled unless I understood how this amazing creature was taken away from me. And I kind of basically said to him, I hope you live a life in prison with the kind of fear that I suspect Adrian had when you were in her apartment. I hope you get what you gave her. I mean, I didn't pull any punches. You know, Adrian's mom was more heartbreakingly emotional. I was more like, fuck you. I want you dead. Because that's what I felt. And to a large degree, I still feel that way. The other thing was, is that she wasn't a murder victim. She was a human being, and she was a wife and a mother and a daughter. She had a life, and I needed this guy to know. If, if there was any shred of hope that when he lays his head down at night and he thinks about this, that maybe I can have this haunt him for the rest of his life when he sees Adrian with Sophie, sees Adrian with her mother, sees Adrian and me. If he goes to bed every night feeling really shitty about the human being he took, that was very important to me. And in, you, in my film, when you see me say, I want to show you some pictures, he, he, the reaction from him is like, oh, shit. Like, he didn't want to go there. He didn't want those images in his head. I want to show you some pictures. You took a wife. You took someone who I was madly in love with. You took a mother. That's my daughter with her mom. They don't have anything anymore. And they had everything. Break.
bringing yourself to the point of having to make the request, write the letter. I tried to do that once and it was torture for me because in order for me to want to see my brother's killer when he was in prison, I needed to sort of humanize my brother's killer to a place that I could try to get him to soften so he would let me come in. And it was a mind fuck for me because here I was asking the person that stabbed my brother to death for a favor. I get all that. And I went through a lot of that. I mean, when I decided to write the letter, I, you know, I mean, how many letters do we write people when we start with, dear Kim? And I was like, well, I'm not writing dear, dear. How do I start this letter? I didn't. I just went into it. I was like, you're probably surprised to hear from me. Like there was no salutation, nothing. So I had to like rewire my whole way of thinking, but I compartmentalized it all. I didn't look at it as a favor. I looked at it as an obligation. That's how I presented it to him. I'm not Andy, the husband per se. I'm Andy on a, on a mission to find the truth. So nothing he did or said would distract me from that. How many letters were exchanged between the two of you before the meeting was set up and you were heading out to the prison? It was a long period of time because just the way this criminal justice system works between how you send a letter and how long it takes to get through the system to get to him and then for him to respond and get back to you. So there's a lot of delay in that, but it went like this. Hey, do you want to do it? Sure, I'll do it. Okay, great. Let's set up this date. No, I changed my mind. What's wrong with you? I, I can't do it. But you said you would do anything for me and my family. You owe this to us. You want to be a man. This is the kind of man you are. I, I just can't do it. I'm too afraid. I guess that's the kind of man you are. You're just nothing. You're a coward and you're always going to be a coward. Okay, I'll do it. That's pretty much how it went. So I, I was allowed to sort of keep my integrity and my dignity and not call in a favor and stick to my guns. And I remember saying to my producing partners when I dropped the letter in the mail, the last one, I said, he's either going to tell me to go fuck myself or we're getting the interview. But I was satisfied that if he told me to go fuck myself, it was because I told him he's a fucking coward. I didn't diminish my own sense of self. I didn't have to go there. I got that interview on my terms in a very short amount of time. And so I felt in control of it from start to finish. It worked for me. I got what I needed. How did Adrian's family, including Sophie, feel about you making that trek? Adrian's mom, when I explained it, she got it. She was very supportive. And so was Sophie. Sophie wanted to go. I actually asked him. I tried to have her come with me. I said, do you really want to do this? She was like, yeah, I do. She was I've got things I need to say. And I was like, who am I to deny this kid? How am I to say, oh, this isn't right for you if she wants to do it? So I went through the system, but it was too late for a minor. You need special requests and all that. And so when I did the interview, this is not in my film, but I was with him for almost 90 minutes at the end. And this is when I kind of got indignant is when I asked him, my daughter wants to come here. Would you be willing to see her? And he said to me, no, right away. Like, no, I, I agreed to meet with you, but I'm not meeting your whole family. And that's when I realized this guy's just a piece of shit. And that's when I was like, I'm out of here. I'm done. So what does Sophie do with that emotion and those needs to confront her mom's murderer? She works through it the same way I think others would. You know, She's living in a world that's different than other kids her age. And so from a very young age, she understood what bad guys were and what murderers were. And when she should have been trying to figure out whether she likes chocolate versus vanilla, she's asking who killed mommy and what did he do? You know, and so we've been navigating that journey together over the years. Does Sophie have a clear understanding of what happened and 
were you the one to share that with her? Or did she find that information out on her own? Well, that's a funny question because we live in the age of Google. I think up until a certain point, everything she got, she got from me. But then, you know, she she did start poking around online, like you would suspect at a certain age. But, you know, she was very involved in my film. She was not just a someone that talked with me on camera, but she was on shoots. She sat and listened. She's credited three times. She did additional camera. She was a PA. She was behind the scenes uh, photography. And so she she really did embrace the process. When she was sitting with me and like some of Adrian's friends and coworkers, like she was there with me learning stuff about her mom that neither of us knew before. Did anything surprise you that you learned about Adrienne or? Yeah, as much as I knew how awesome she was and how loved she was, I was just skimming the surface. Adrienne was truly one of those people that everyone loved. We all know like a friend or two that's that person. You're like, how is that possible, right? And some people even believe if everyone loves you, you must be doing something wrong. But it's not true. There's those magical people that have these qualities and that enables them to achieve greatness because their approach to life is so different. Their approach to people is so different. Do you feel like making the documentary, it exacerbated your grief in any way? Did you walk away thinking, oh, it just makes it so much worse that she's not here because I'm reminded of how larger than life she was and the impact that she had? The thing I always equate it to is like if someone sets out to climb Mount Everest, A, it's because they're probably really skilled at what they do or at least know what they're facing, right? But they know they're going to get blisters and maybe some gangrene or an infection. They may pass out. They may dehydrate. Shit's going to happen along the way. But they know when they get to that summit, there's going to be no regrets. And they're going to achieve something that they felt was so important. This was my Mount Everest because of what you just said. I knew what I'd be going through. This whole process for me was, I mean, there were moments of joy when I heard funny anecdotes and things that I learned, but I knew when I'd get to the top that I would never have a regret. But it's like rediscovering this woman, and I'm sure you feel this way about your brother, is that it just happens where you can forget how awesome they were. Of course. Um, years ago, we very early on, we wrote a book about my brother. His name is Ron. And at the time, we were adamant that we didn't want to do it. And we were accused of all sorts of shit for writing it. Begrudgingly, we agreed, wrote this beautiful book. But I have to tell you that I refer to it. I mean, I actually just put it back up on the shelf because I read it as awful and gut-wrenching as it is. I read it because I, I, I find my memories fade sometimes. And then I get mad at myself because, wow, did I not love him as much? I'm, I'm, something's not connecting. There's a panic that sort of overwhelms me sometimes if I don't remember. And so I pull it down. I'm like, oh, no, no, I got it. I got it. And so I'm so grateful to have that. Yeah. We're a little different in the sense that like, I have this little creature called Sophie who thankfully looks so much like her mom and is a great reminder in some ways. And there are moments where like just the other night, I just looked at her and, and, she, and she, you know, like a teenager, she's like, what are you looking at? <laughs> I said, I'm looking at you because right now you look so much like your mother. It's freaky. And she acts a lot like her mother. But the truth is, you put distance between you and that person and you do forget. And for me, the reason I made the film was for my family so that we'll never forget. And it's been wonderful for us. You 
understandably spend time and energy and dedication to Adrian. Does that make it hard for you to create intimate relationships? Are you open to love? Do you have anybody in your life? Yeah, I was with someone, I think about three years after Adrian died, I met my ex, Phoebe. We were together 10 years and we split up about a year and a half ago. We're still very good friends and she's still a huge part of Sophie's life and she's an amazing person. And, you know, one of the reasons we were able to be together that long is because that I genuinely believe it never was an issue with her. She understood it. There are some women that might walk in my apartment and go, oh, a whole little table full of Adrian photos. He's still hung up on his ex. Another woman might come in and look at that and go, oh my God, what a great reminder for Sophie of who her mother was. That was Phoebe. So Phoebe understood that. Someone who understands that when the love of your life is ripped out of your life, you know, this guy just can't walk away. Out of dedication to her, I have to continue to build and honor her legacy. And even if it's just for her daughter, it's important. I think it's important for you to share with us the balance between taking care of Sophie and honoring Adrian and taking care of Andy. So how do you manage that? Well, that is very important. I have this kid who I had, you know, was forced to raise by myself from the time she was three. I have three other children from my first marriage. I now have three grandchildren. And so, you know, if you take that chapter out of my book, I've got a pretty charmed life and I'm really happy with my life. And so I don't walk around with this eating away at me. I've moved forward. And that said, I think anytime something happens, it changes the direction of your life. You know, I run a foundation, the Adrian Shelley Foundation. We've given out over a hundred grants to women filmmakers. So from that mess, I dedicate my life or part of my life to spinning some gold. It's a glass half full approach to living in the days, weeks, months, and years after something horrible like that. The Adrian Shelley Foundation partners with existing organizations to help talented women achieve their filmmaking dreams. So we partner with Sundance Institute, Women in Film, American Film Institute, Columbia, UCLA Film School. And so over the years, we have over 100 grantees. And I guess our biggest claim to fame was Chloe Zhao, which she won the Best Director Oscar. She was a grant recipient of ours in 2012 when she was just making short films. Dee Reese is another one. There's a lot of women in our fold now that have become very well-known filmmakers. And so we know the impact is there. And we knew it in our first year when Cynthia Wade won an Oscar for her short film, Free Health, which if you go on our website, adrianshellyfoundation.org, you'll see a letter from Cynthia saying, I couldn't make this film without the funds I got from you. And that was a year after we started the foundation, a year after Adrian died. So it's been great. It's just been great. In March 2008, Adrian's killer agreed to a plea bargain and was sentenced to 25 years with no chance of parole. Were you okay with that sentence? No. I had no choice, though. The prosecutor sat me down one day and he said, all right, we have an opportunity to plea this out. And of course, everybody wants 25 to life, no parole, whatever. But he explained it to me, and I was a business person. So I said, all right, turn off the emotions. I'm just going to look at this as a business meeting. And he said, he's 19, he's baby-faced, he's five foot one, no record. His confession is three hours long, and he cries almost the whole time. Not hard to imagine a jury's going to feel sorry for him. Oh, the poor kid made a mistake. 
the truth is, when you go to trial, someone like that, even if they get 25 to life, is probably not going to do a day more than 25. So what, the way he explained to me is like, you're just rolling the dice for probably almost no chance of the return you want. Right now, today, we can lock in 25. No appeal, no parole. This is a no-brainer. Adrian's killer could be out of prison in 2033. He'll be in his mid-40s. So, Andy, what are your thoughts on justice and forgiveness? That's a really interesting question because that could go in one of many directions. Some people would say, oh, I want him dead now, death penalty, blah, blah, blah. And I've gone in and out of my own feelings on that over the years. I don't think 25 is enough. And I definitely would love him to be rotting in prison for the rest of his life. I don't feel I got justice. I don't feel Adrian got justice or the family got justice. She's dead at 40. He'll be a free man at 45. That's not justice. My world was destroyed when he took my wife for no reason whatsoever. And there was no way I can forgive that ever. And when it comes to the media? Is there something that you get asked a lot that you wish, like, oh my gosh, just that's the one thing. It's the one thing I hate. I used to get asked, like, Adrian loved making pies. I'm like, oh, God, that's so stupid. Why, because she made a movie about somebody that makes pies? Like, Earl murders me because I'm having an affair pie. You smash blackberries and raspberries into a chocolate crust. I can't have no affair because it's wrong, and I don't want Earl to kill me pie. Vanilla custard with banana. Hold the banana. Sylvester Stallone, a boxer? Was he a real boxer? No, he made a film because it's called <laughs> acting. Right? He created a fake character. Like, oh my God, that's the that's the question you want to ask me? Did she make pies? No, she didn't make pies. She didn't cook at all. Next. Next. Are there things that you wish people would ask you that they don't? No, and I got to say, and I'm not just bullshitting you, You've, and, and I do believe it's because we're, we, we walk the same earth. You've got into a level of questioning that, that is really meaningful. Because most people are like, all right, we got three minutes with this dude, five minutes with this dude. Or even when it's a 10-minute interview, it's like they just go to the same shit that everybody else asks. This is like getting struck by lightning, right? If I saw somebody on the street who got struck by lightning, the questions I would ask them would be like unbelievable. I wouldn't be like, did you think it was going to be a storm? Like, I, I, that just seems like a dumb question. And so I'm just always rating, like, in my mind. I mean, like, all right, there she goes, asking this. Girl. And uh, so I always make it a point to tell people when I think they're asking a really good question. Because that's the whole point of talking is to share things that people either don't know or would never even think to know. Lastly, tell me about your podcast. It's called The Back Room with Andy Ostroyd. You know, the thinking is just to have guests on that run the gamut of celebrities, politicians, journalists, media people, talk about politics, talk about pop culture, business, Wall Street. Yeah, we're going to be serious, talk about serious shit, but we're also going to like be really fun and silly and stupid too and have some fun. Excellent. Andy Ostroyd lives a life that honors family, loyalty, and legacy. Three things that are so important to me as well. Thank you, Andy, for your friendship and for sharing your heart with me. Find Andy on Twitter at Andy Ostroy. To continue the conversation, follow me at Kim E. Goldman on social media. Media Circus is a cast original podcast, executive produced and hosted by me, Kim Goldman. Produced by Jackie McDougall. Edited by Anton Doty and Jordan Cantor. Harper Carlton is our associate producer. <laughs>